Will you turn with me now back to John chapter 21? John 21, and uh, we'll read from verse 18. Jesus saying to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and, he, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. It's clear that when you look at reports of traffic accidents, deaths on the road, that driver distraction is a major cause of traffic fatalities. When you look at the statistics, they may very, make very solemn and stark reading. The number of people that are distracted by something inside the car, something like texting, eating something, changing the sat-nav, or radio channel, or CD, or whatever. These are all features of fatalities on a road and causes of accidents that lead to fatalities. Along with that, you have uh, so many things outside the car that can draw your attention away from focusing on the road, uh, especially if you're near the cities where you have uh, adverts, advertising boards, even the scenery itself can draw your mind away. And of course, sometimes when you're on the motorway especially, if you come across a traffic accident, many people have accidents simply because they want to look at what's happened and want to get some detail as they go past. And distractions are very much a feature of the Christian life as well and very much a, a feature of what we face as we come day by day to seek to follow Jesus. We very easily get sidetracked, either in a major or minor way. And it is the case with Peter, as we saw, that he was sidetracked in different ways from following Jesus, and Jesus more than once pointed out to him things that could very easily take him aside and not follow the Lord as closely or as wholeheartedly as he should. We saw, in fact, uh, uh, some few studies ago in Luke chapter 22 that the Lord had said to him that Satan had desired to have him, that he might sift them all as wheat, but he had prayed for, for him. Satan's design was on the whole uh, body of disciples. He wanted to, to scatter them. He wanted to cause havoc amongst them, but he had prayed for Peter. And when Peter was recovered anticipating his denial, which we also saw, uh, then he was to strengthen his brother. So here again the Lord is drawing Peter to the need to avoid being sidetracked. And that's really the theme of our study this evening. Avoiding the sidetracks, those things that could easily cause us to be sidetracked from following Christ as we should. And indeed that's Christ's emphasis at the very beginning of Peter's journey as a disciple. We remember 
our very first study in John 1 where you find Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, bringing him to Jesus and Jesus saying things about him and then saying, follow me. That was his directive right at the outset of his discipleship. Follow me was really the central theme. And now as he comes to this point, very far on in his discipleship, the Lord is actually having now risen himself from the dead and shortly about to leave this world physically to return to the Father. He's saying again to Peter, Peter, this is the essence of your discipleship. This is really at the very heart of discipleship. Follow me. And that's really how it is for us, isn't it? The whole of the Christian life is about following Jesus. About following him through whatever circumstances in his lordship he actually brings us to and brings us through. But it's all about following him. It's all about avoiding the distractions. And we do remember this dark power, this satanic power that had his eye and intent and purpose upon Peter. And it's the same for you and for me tonight as that dark power that Satan is looks upon the Lord's people, looks upon the worshipping of God's people, looks down and into in a way that you are perhaps and I are perhaps not aware of many times. Yet that is always his intention. Every single thing that, that he lays before you by way of temptation, every attempt that he has on your life and on your following of Jesus is with a view to actually getting you away and being sidetracked. That's what he tried with the Lord himself. He was tempted in the wilderness and the devil came to him these three times that are recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke and the whole purpose of that temptation was to sidetrack Jesus if it were possible so that he would not go through with the cross with his work of redemption and that it would be nullified by coming to give obedience and allegiance to the word of the devil avoiding the sidetracks now this is really pretty much about uh, Peter asking about uh, John we take it to be the beloved, beloved disciple but even before that first of all you have to see how being sidetracked involves very often concerns about the future Jesus is here saying to him Truly I say to you, when you are young, you will dress yourself, and so on. When you're old, you'll stretch out your hands. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And he said this. This is John's comment on it. This is what Jesus said. To show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. In other words, Jesus was revealing to Peter beforehand what lay ahead of him. And indeed, how he would end his course of discipleship in this world. Uh, tradition has it. And we're told by some that it's reliable tradition. Of course, it's not scripture. But tradition had it, has it that Peter, and it's a very old tradition, that Peter was actually crucified upside down. Now, we can't verify that for sure, but that's a very long-standing ancient tradition. And whatever you say of that, it's certainly the case. What Jesus here predicted and what Jesus told him about what Jesus brought him to see would be the case is undoubtedly Jesus revealing to him that his freedom, his liberty would be curtailed. Others would take hold of him and against what he himself would prefer they would carry him where he did not want to go. This was to show what kind of death 
by which he was going to glorify God. It wouldn't be the way that Peter himself would have chosen it. It very often is like that with ourselves. It's not very often, it's very often the case rather that things that happen in our experience are not how we would have chosen it. It's not how we would have set things out. It's not the kind of situation or steps that we might ourselves have put into the plan of our life if we had been left to plan it ourselves. But we're not the planner. Jesus is. And here he is saying to him, you'll have this loss of liberty. This is what's going to be the end of your course in this world as one of my disciples. Then, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. In other words, Peter is saying to him, uh, Jesus is saying to Peter, despite this, and even in the light of what I'm saying, Peter, your business, your privilege is to follow me. Not only when this will take place, it's not just uh, saying to Peter, when this actually happens, Peter, when you will be uh, curtailed in your liberty, when people will take hold of you, whatever that was going to mean. But all the way through to that, even now, Peter, as you know this, don't let it deflect you from being my disciple, from following me. Don't let it be in your mind something that sidetracks you from being a follower closely of me. It's so significant that he actually added that immediately after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And that really is to us also a reminder that uh, we have concerns that could very easily distract us, sideline us, from following Jesus. We all have concerns about the future. Even, uh, of course, when it's not been revealed to us as it is with Peter. Concerns about health, about career, about old age, concerns about death itself or circumstances of death and how we'll cope with certain restrictions and certain limitations and certain events that may or may not occur. Sometimes we are taken up by these in such a way that we find ourselves being sidetracked and we lose our focus and we lose our confidence in Christ himself. And even those things that are impossible and have not been revealed to us, especially theological points, we can actually have those as a matter that will sidetrack us and prevent us from actually following the Lord as fully as we should especially questions such as election or predestination. You know the kind of thing I'm talking about where people will say, if only I knew that I was in God's elect. How can I know that I belong to God's elect people? Because I read in the Bible that God's elect people will certainly be saved. And I really would want to know that I will certainly be saved. Or others might even have the view that, well, if I am indeed of God's elect people, I know that that means I will certainly be saved. Therefore I can relax because inevitably I'm going to come to be saved anyway. And people try and fit these sort of things, predestination and our own will and all of these things and see where they tie together and come into all sorts of uh, theological convulsions in order to try and sort out these things and they really can't be sorted out in this life. Indeed Spurgeon, one time when he was asked about this kind of thing by somebody, he said, I cannot tell you for the life of me whether I am predestined to go to bed tonight or not. But I will tell you tomorrow morning. And he went on to say, 
It reminds me, he says, of a man called Malachi, a poor man, Malachi, who lived in Cornwall. A man owed him some rent, and he said, Malachi, I owe you five pounds, but I'm not going to pay you till you tell me if I'm predestined to pay it. Oh, said Malachi, you put the money down here. And he did. And Malachi took it and put it in his pocket. And he said, yes, you are predestined to pay me. Now, what's the point of all that? The point of all that, as uh, indeed we're, we're seeing from this chapter here itself, is what is that to you? You follow me. The way to be actually sure and to know that you are in the elect of God's people is to give your life to Christ. And when you've given your life to Christ, then you can turn around and say, well, I must be amongst God's people because I have willingly and been made willing to give my life to Christ, to embrace Christ, to take Him as my Savior. Some of you may even tonight be looking at what you might call the house or the edifice of salvation, if you can, if you can picture it as a, a lovely mansion. And there are many people that look at that edifice or house or mansion of salvation, but they're looking in through the windows. They're admiring all those things that they can see inside. The pardon of God, forgiveness, justification, sanctification, uh, union with Christ, uh, perseverance. All of those things that you can see from outside as you look into the windows by the aid of Scripture, by the aid of the Gospel. And you can see that Christ himself is the door to that building, to that edifice of salvation. But what's the good of admiring it from outside? What's the good of just standing there saying, you know, I wish I really knew that I belong to God's people. And until I know it more certainly, I'll just have to stay where I am and keep looking in those windows and admiring those things of salvation and here is Jesus saying to you, don't stand there looking. Just get inside. Go through the door that Jesus is. Then you can turn around and admire the things that you see around you within, inside that house of salvation. And you can then begin to see more fully the links between these great doctrines of the faith. But please don't stand outside any longer. Don't think that Somehow or other, you will be saved just because you know there's such a thing as election and predestination and effectual calling and God's uh, work of grace in people's hearts. What is that to you? You follow me, Jesus is saying. And of course, there's a very comforting point in what he's saying here as well to, to, to Peter. Um, Truly, truly, I say to you. And we can perhaps skip over these words too quickly, but really what that is saying to Peter is that the Lord already knows his future and that the future of Peter is safe in the hands of Christ. That he is already not just aware of these things, but he is actually himself the Lord of his future, just as he is of his present and of his past. And that, of course, really should give us a huge amount of comfort as well if we've given our life to Christ that's the most important thing of all but having done that leave the future with the Lord as your present too and your past 
Because what this is saying to us is, He knows what your future is. He's ordained it. He has planned it. He's the one who takes care of every aspect of it and will do so through to the end of your life and beyond. So don't be taken up with that sort of worrying. Matthew chapter 6 is one of the classic passages in the Bible about worrying or being over anxious. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. Sometimes we get sidetracked by worrying over what tomorrow might bring. And when tomorrow comes, God willing, we understand that actually there wasn't much cause to worry at all. God's in charge of it, just as he was of today. So there's our concerns about the future, concerns about things relating to the future, concerns about doctrinal issues. All of these things can come together to sidetrack us from following Christ. When he had said this, he said to him, follow me. Secondly, along with that concern, there are comparisons with others. Peter saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, and he turned, um, when, he, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, we don't know for sure why Peter asked this about his companion, John. Was he perhaps concerned that John himself might not have to go through such things as the Lord had said to, to Peter just shortly before that, as we've seen? Or was there something in Peter that was just curious as to whether or not John might have to suffer a similar ending to his life as the Lord had specified about Peter himself we don't know but he asked us what about him what's going to be in his life what about this man how is his life going to develop how is his life going to end what will be in his lot and Jesus said very tellingly what is that to you if it is my will that he remains until I come back what is that to you in other words, uh, having said to Peter what kind of death he was going to die, he's now saying in answer to this query, this question, if it's my will that this man doesn't die at all before I come, what is that to you? Even if he's so different to you as that he will not see death at all, that's actually not your business. Your business is to follow me, irrespective of how your life compares to his life or his to years. And it is important that we see there, if it is my will. You see, it's the Lord's will that appoints such things as the diversity that you see within the discipleship of the Church of Christ. Where someone is so very different to someone else in the gifts they have and the way they carry them out in their thoughts, in their personalities, in their backgrounds, in the type of service they give to Christ. And what Jesus is saying to us is, I have actually appointed that. This is my will. And if it's my will that such and such a person be very different to you in what I ask you to do, what I require of you, so be it. What is that to you? You follow me. 
And let's be prepared, friends, to really accept the Christ-appointed diversity that's within the church of Christ. I'm not suggesting by that that we just accept any kinds of teaching or divergences from the truth. What I'm saying is that there is within a very true discipleship of Jesus such a wide variety of distinct gifts and personalities and so on that that is in fact itself something that really enriches our Christian experience. But you see, he's comparing himself to this man, or at least asking himself, uh, asking Jesus about this man in comparison to Peter himself. Now, there are various things there that we can mention. I'm just going to mention two or three examples, very briefly, of, briefly of, of things in this particular area, which might very often, or are very often, a distraction to us, or perhaps even a means of impeding us, or preventing us going further on in our Christian commitment, or even to commit our life to Christ at all. You'll find some people, for example, first example will say, well, I know that such and such a person or such and such people are far beyond my level of holiness or spirituality. I couldn't possibly measure up to them. I don't measure up to them now. I couldn't possibly be like they are. I couldn't possibly actually uh, pray like they pray. Or you might have people saying, well, such good people that I knew in my parentage or my grandparents I'm far far below them in levels of spiritual attainment or holiness of life and they never took communion so why should I have to do that wouldn't it be a dishonoring to them and to their reputation if I were to actually who am less than they are come and do such a thing you see that's the devil's distraction what is that to you? You follow me. You do what the Lord says is your duty to do and your privilege to do. And in regard to prayer, let me say this. Some men particularly may be put off coming to take communion because they assume that they'll be asked shortly after that or some time after that to engage in public prayer. And that's our practice, that we ask men who are communicants to engage in public prayer. But there's nothing in Scripture, whatever, as far as I'm aware, uh, that would specify that every single individual who comes to take communion, every single man who takes communion, should be expected to lead a congregation in prayer. Some people don't necessarily have that gift. And that's something we have to accept. It's not a get-out, it's not a way of avoiding responsibility or the privilege of praying publicly in the presence of other people, but we should not expect absolutely everyone to be able to do it. And we mustn't actually insist that that is going to be the case if it's going to mean that people who don't have that gift are not going to take communion as is their privilege and their duty to do so. What is that to you? You follow me. Or you might even find too, on the other hand, uh, not just those who look to others that are, as they see it far ahead of them in holiness and attainment, but also others who see faults in Christians who follow the Lord, who see failures and flaws and inconsistencies, and who may be afraid themselves to commit themselves 
more fully or commit themselves at all to the Lord. And of course, you'll get those especially out with the church, perhaps even within the church as well, that say, well, if that's the case, if they're so far from being perfect, then the whole of this religion thing is just a sham. It's just hypocrisy. That's what the atheist will tell you. That's what a humanist will tell you. That's what the secularist will tell you. It's all just hypocrisy. It's all just a sham. And the sooner we get rid of it, the better. Was Peter a sham? Look at this man who failed so drastically. As we saw his failure when we looked at that episode in his life, three times he denied his Lord. Was he a failure? Did Jesus not reinstate him as we saw last time in his interview with him where he questioned him regarding his love? Didn't we see the importance of Peter actually saying, Lord, the third time he'd been asked, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. In other words, he was saying, of course I'm not perfect. Of course I have flaws. But what is that to anyone else? You follow me is what Jesus is saying to us. Don't be sidetracked by seeing inconsistencies in others. That will put yourself on the sidetrack of non-commitment or lesser commitment or reluctance to commit yourself. What is that to you? Everyone will have to stand by their own life and by the, the uh, things that we have done, as uh, Paul says in Second Corinthians, when we come appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each person may receive the things they have done, whether good or bad. I wouldn't answer for your sins, you wouldn't answer for my sins. I wouldn't have to in any way give an account of, of uh, your life. I will only have to give an account of my own and that's enough. And he's saying, what is that to you? Let's not be distracted by measuring ourselves by others, by comparing ourselves with others by putting ourselves along with others, whether they're far ahead of us or whether we, we think that actually they're not really surely Christians at all. What is that to you? You follow me. Or you might even find others, thirdly, uh, that would uh, be quite content to be on the periphery, on the outline, uh, on the outside, or just on the outer edges, if you like, of the church and of involvement in the church or involvement in the gospel and would be quite content to actually follow those people too. Now what's the point? What's the point of remaining on the periphery, on the edge? If Christ is worth following, then follow him. Don't stay out there at a distance from where you should be. Don't let anyone else persuade you that that's all right. Don't conclude from seeing others doing that, that that's what you should do as well. And that it's better for you to remain on the periphery than actually become more committed to Jesus and more involved in the life of the church. That's what the evil one, that's what the dark power will actually suggest to you. That's the conclusion he will bring to your mind. That's what the fear of man will do to us. But in fact, Jesus is saying, well, what is that to you? What is it to you where anyone else is or what, any, everyone, what anyone else thinks or where everyone else is in regard to commitment to Jesus? You follow me. And then there's something else just to conclude with. 
It's a very important point in itself. Because it says that the saying spread abroad, it's a rumor really, among the brothers that this is Christians and disciples, that this disciple was not going to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You see, the people that heard this misunderstood. Some of them misunderstood. Some of them went away with the idea that Jesus had actually said about John, he's not going to die. He's going to remain in this world until the Lord comes back again. And that rumor spread among the disciples. And people believed this. And in believing this, they missed the whole point of what Jesus was saying. He didn't say, as John here says, as John confirms, that he would not die. But if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? And that brings up the whole issue of rumor and carrying tales and inaccuracies which we don't have time really to go into in depth, but because it's in the passage, it's important to notice it, because that itself is very often a means of sidetracking people from following Christ. The carrying forward of that which is unsubstantiated, that which is untrue, that which is not provable. I was talking to a journalist the other day, a reputable journalist. There are many disreputable ones around. Thankfully, there are many reputable ones too. And we mustn't just uh, apply the same sort of description to all of the media, to all of the journalism that we find in our land. And this reputable journalist said to me, you know, he said, if certain people who are Christians, and was Christians he was talking about, if, if certain people who are Christians had to apply the same careful analysis and rules uh, that we do and that we should be doing, before we come to report anything publicly, they wouldn't actually open their mouths so quickly, or at all. Because he says, we, as journalists, ought to, as we're required, to actually verify our sources, and verify the truth of what we receive. Who said it? When did they say it? In what circumstances was it said? Who told them? And only when you're absolutely as convinced as possible that it is the truth, then you go to press, and then you can publish it. Now, it's the same, of course, in the church. The Bible elsewhere speaks about the danger, and not only the danger, but um, the wrongness of spreading rumors, spreading things which aren't verifiable, things which are not necessarily true at all, or even if you don't know that they be true or otherwise. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 13 speaks about idlers, people who were just wasting their time because they were taken up so much with spreading news or spreading Uh, rumors about others. That's what they were really concerned with, gossiping. The New Testament has frequent references to gossiping and how the church of God should avoid gossiping. In other words, uh, if you don't know the truth or otherwise of something, keep it to yourself. Don't say anything to anyone about it. And even if it's been verified... That doesn't mean that you need to actually publicize it or bring it up or spread it. But certainly where it has not been established as true, where it is a rumor, there's that, um, there's that terrible saying, in, I've very often heard in Gaelic, mas priak hukum, mas priak vauma. If it's come to me as a lie, 
then it's a lie leaving me as well. If it, or if it's a lie leaving me, it's because I received it as a lie, as if it was somebody else's blame. If you don't know whether or not it's a lie or verified or truthful, don't say it. Don't carry it about. Don't spread it. That has done huge damage to the cause of Christ and to other human beings, even out with the church. What he's saying is, here is a, a misunderstanding on the part even of these disciples and they had missed the point because of it of what Jesus was saying so here is the Lord impressing upon us this evening upon myself and upon yourselves our business really primarily is to follow Jesus to follow him to put him first so tonight this is my question to myself where am I tonight? Am I on the main road of following Christ? Or am I on some sidetrack? And that's the question for you too. Are you on the main road of following Him? Or are you on a sidetrack? Have you been sidetracked by some consideration or other? Even if it's not amongst the ones we looked at tonight your comparison with other people, your thoughts about the future, your own limitations. You're content to be on the sidelines with others, on the periphery. The failures or inconsistencies of professing Christians. What is that to you? You follow me. Let's pray. We give thanks, O Lord our God, uh, for the directness of your truth and for the way that it challenges us in regard to our following of you. We thank you for the privilege of being your disciples. Uh, we pray your forgiveness for our own inconsistencies, for our own flaws and failures that are all too evident. And even if they are not, we know them, Lord, ourselves in our hearts. We pray that you would grant to us to be less diverted from fixing our eye upon you and to be uh, constantly enabled by your grace to avoid being sidetracked from a commitment to Christ and from our wholehearted following of the Lord as our God. Receive our worship anew this evening, we pray, pardoning all our sin for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're going to conclude our worship tonight singing in Psalm number 17. Psalm number 17 on page 18. Uh, the tune is Franconia. And we're singing verses uh, 4b, that's the middle of verse 4, from every evil path, uh, four verses through to the end of verse 8. From every evil path, by your word I am preserved. My feet have held to all your ways, from them I have not swerved. Through to verse 8, in shadow of your wings, hide me in times of strife, and as the apple of your eye, preserve and guard my life. These verses in conclusion.
if you allow me to get to the main door, please, after the benediction. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be your portion now and evermore. Amen.